Relations Journal, and uh, he was assigned to the Jerusalem Bureau of his newspaper. He gets an apartment overlooking the Wailing Wall. After several weeks, he realizes that whenever he looks at the wall, he sees an old Jewish man praying vigorously. Journalists wondered whether there was a publishable story here. He goes down to the wall, introduces himself, and he says, You come every day to the wall. What are you praying for? The old man replies, What am I praying for? In the morning, I pray for world peace. Then I pray for the brotherhood of man. I go home, have a glass of tea, and I come back to the wall to pray for the eradication of illness and disease from the earth. The journalist is taken by the old man's sincerity and persistence. You mean you have been coming to the wall to pray every day for these things? The old man nods. How long have you been coming to the wall to pray for these things? The old man becomes reflective and then he replies, how long? Maybe 20, 25 years. The amazed journalist finally asks, how does it feel to come and pray every day for over 20 years for these things? How does it feel, the old man replies. It feels like I'm talking to a wall. <laughs> My mother used to say that to me. My poor mom. In the earliest Hebrew manuscripts, 1st and 2nd Samuel was considered one book, as was 1st and 2nd Kings. The book of Samuel was named after the man who was appointed by God to establish the monarchy in Israel. There is no author named in the books, although the Jewish Talmud identifies Samuel himself, but he dies in 1st Samuel chapter 25. The remaining chapters are commonly attributed to Nathan and Gad. But Nathan and Gad were prophets during David's lifetime and were not alive when the book was written. So the human author of 1st and 2nd Samuel is unknown. The events in 1st Samuel spans from the birth of Samuel to the death of Saul, Israel's first king. God had raised up judges to preserve the nation against their enemies. Now Israel was being transformed from loosely knit tribes under judges into a united nation under a monarch. Judges 21-25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone was corrupt. The priests and judges were dishonest. Idolatry was practiced. Even the Ark of the Covenant was not at the tabernacle. This was a terrible time in Israel's history. How did the nation get this way? Moses had passed the baton of leadership of the nation onto Joshua before he died. Joshua was to lead the nation into the promised land that God had given to them. They were to drive out the people living there and divide it amongst the 12 tribes. None were to remain which Joshua did, but not all the Canaanites were driven out. Each tribe was expected to purge them from the land they inherited, which they did not. See Judges 1, 27 through 36. Even the Benjamites failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem, God's holy city. See Judges 1, 21. 
Israel was a very rebellious nation, even from the beginning. God had instructed them to stay pure, not intermarry with their pagan neighbors, and worship no other gods but him. But they did. This was in direct disobedience of God's instructions, and the angel of the Lord came to them and rebuked them. In Judges 2, 1 and 2, the angel of the Lord, who is Christ, said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? When Joshua and the elders after him were alive, the nation served the Lord. But when Joshua, his generation, and the elders died, another generation came up after them, and they did not know the Lord. See Judges 2, 6 through 10. They were disobedient, idolatrous, and often defeated. They hadn't learned the lesson that with obedience comes prosperity, with disobedience, adversity. There are five basic reasons for Israel's moral and spiritual decline. Their disobedience in failing to drive the Canaanites out of the land, idolatry, intermarriage with pagan Canaanites, they didn't listen to their judges, and they turned from God after the death of all their judges. Judges 2, 18 and 19, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices of their stubborn ways. Judges 2.11-23 explains how angry God was and that he gave them into the hands of their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, and they were severely distressed. They developed a four-part cycle which occurred over and over. First, they turned away from God, worship idols. Then they were chastised with being conquered and subjugated by their enemies. They pleaded for deliverance and mercy, and finally God sent judges to help them. This was a very bad time in Israel's history. Samuel was the last of the judges. With Samuel and Eli, they were 14 total. Moses and Abraham were prophets. Samuel was first in the line of prophets, so he was a prophet and a judge. He was also a Levite. 1 Samuel 1.1 describes Samuel's father, Elkanah, coming from the hill country of Ephraim. 1 Chronicles 6.27 describes Elkanah in the line of the Kohathite branch of the tribe of Levi, the priests, which is why Samuel was able to serve in the tabernacle, which he did under Eli. Eli appears to have been a good man, full of humility and gentleness, but he was weak and indulgent. He's not a strong personality. He had two sons. Both of them were corrupt. He saw what they were doing, but only chided them for their greed and immorality. He even benefited from it. They had earned the title of men of Belial, or worthlessness, and they would pay the price for their sin along with their father. 
Samuel also had two sons, and in his old age, Samuel shared his power with them. Chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, explains that Samuel judges Israel all the days of his life, and that annually he would go on a circuit judging Israel in those places. Then he would return to his home and continue to judge. It makes sense he would ask his sons to help him in his old age. But just like Eli, his sons were corrupt. You'd think he would have learned not to repeat Eli's mistakes in raising his sons. Maybe he was just gone too much. Verse 3 of chapter 8 says, His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge. Appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. For a thousand years from the time of Abraham, there hadn't been a king over Israel. God was their king and protector. But he had always had a plan for Israel to have a king. God had predicted in Genesis 35, 11, 36, 31, 49, 10, Numbers 24, 7, and 9, 17, Deuteronomy 17, 14, and 28, 36, that Israel would ask for a king. That's a lot of scripture. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 15a. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And then God gave them restrictions on whom they could choose. The people were premature in their request for a king, and if they had waited, they could have avoided a lot of trouble. However, the impatient Israelites wouldn't wait on the Lord and decided they wanted a king right away. Samuel was troubled, and he prayed to the Lord. God told him to listen to their request, tell them what the procedure for choosing a king would be, and warn them about their decision. Samuel warns them in chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, that they would regret their decision and cry out for freedom from his rule. But God would not hear their cries. He warned them that the king would be a dictator and take from them what he wanted, and he would take the best, including their children, for his service. And God would not hear their cries. Israel insisted, Verse 18, then you will cry out on that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel was troubled by their motive and their attitude, not their request. They were not rejecting Samuel. They were rejecting God himself as they came in protector. They wanted to be like other nations. They wanted a king with an organized army to fight against the Philistines, their enemy and anyone else who would threaten them. After all he had done for them, they did not trust God. Israel did not want to be unique. They wanted to be like everyone else. Human leadership is never a substitute for faith in God. So God appointed a man named Saul. God gave him Saul in answer to their request for a king. Saul means ask of God. 
Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the image of a perfect king, tall and handsome. Chapter 9, verse 2. He, meaning a man named Kish, had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. In Genesis, Jacob summoned his sons and practiced and, and predicted the type of character each tribe would have and what would happen to them. He said that Benjamin would be a ravenous wolf, ferocious, warlike, and they were, and Saul was a Benjamite. In the beginning, King Saul was successful. He seemed humble and timid. He fought the Ammonites and he won. He fought all enemies and defeated them. But that changed. Conflicts and problems revealed true character. God set the king up so he would reign through him. Saul was not a man after God's own heart. He was rebellious and self-sufficient. He actually made a burnt offering himself in chapter 13, verse 9, which he had no business doing. Only Levites were permitted to be priests and make offerings. Saul wished to rule as an autocrat, possessing absolute power in civil and sacred manners. In Deuteronomy 17:14, God expected a king to behave in a certain way. Saul did not behave. He was a moral failure. God wanted the king to rely on him, not his own strength. Leadership calls for dependency on the Lord. Too many think they can do what they choose to do, even in our churches today. Saul wanted victory, but he didn't want to obey, so God was going to remove him from the throne. In chapter 15, God gives, uh, gave Saul the opportunity to redeem himself with obedience, but he failed. 15, 24-26. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul wasn't concerned with obedience, just what people thought of him. He was concerned with how it would look if Samuel didn't return with him. That was the last time Samuel saw him until the day Saul died. Saul was on the throne 15 more years, and then God replaced him with David. God said of David that he was a man after his own heart. David was not plan B. He was God's choice from the beginning of eternity. God used Saul's sin, his disobedience, to bring about his own purpose of placing David on the throne of Israel. He never forced Saul to disobey. He just used his disobedience to remove him. David was not perfect, as we know. He would not even meet the standards of a New Testament elder. But God knew his character and called him a man after his own heart. God looks at the heart, not externals. Chapter 16 describes how Samuel finally settled on David. It's a very interesting story. David was the youngest brother. He was the shepherd. He tended their sheep in the fields. When God told Samuel that David was his anointed one, Samuel was surprised, and so was David's father. 
God had been preparing David all his life to be king. He was around 16 when Samuel anointed him. Years passed before he was ready to take the throne. During that time, he developed many gifts he had been blessed with. He was a fine musician. He wrote poetry. Poetry. He was a warrior. He was a faithful shepherd to the flock. He was humble, didn't brag on himself. Even his father was surprised when he was chosen. Unlike Saul, he was obedient to the Lord. Acts 13, 20 through 22. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So David was a man of great character. When David was anointed, God's spirit came on him, and at the same time was removed from Saul. Saul experienced terrible anxiety and paranoia. Chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah, where he lived. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. God had turned Saul over to Satan. Saul's servants were concerned about him and suggested he let them seek a man who was a skillful harp player and that the music would soothe him. Guess who they found? 16, chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to David and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. God introduced David into this court of King Saul. Chapter 16, verse 21. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. In subsequent chapters, David slays the giant Goliath, befriends Saul's son, Jonathan, marries Saul's daughter, and flees from Saul's wrath. David was a great warrior, and chapter 18, verse 6 through 8, describes a turning point between David and Saul. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the woman came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. But to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Saul turned against David. 
He was threatened by them and for good reason. Chapter 18, verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Surely Saul understood that it was David who God chose to replace him. Jonathan, Saul's son, warned David that his father wanted to kill him. So David fled for his life. He kept moving to stay out of Saul's way to at least 14 different places. Saul was very insecure and was trying to hold on to his position no matter what. David waited on the Lord. As Saul chased him, many times David could have killed Saul, but he would not. Saul had been anointed by God, and for David that meant he was untouchable. The book of 1 Samuel is basically three sections. Chapters 1 through 7 are about Samuel, who God chose to anoint his kings. Chapters 8 through 15 are about Saul, the first king. Chapters 16 through 31 are about David, God's chosen king from which Messiah Jesus Christ would come. There are so many lessons in this remarkable book that we can apply for ourselves in our contemporary world. A major one is how I began this overview with Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That can be changed to in these days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Lest we judge the wickedness of the people in Samuel's time, just look around at the world we live in. And it's getting more wicked every day. How easy it is to become desensitized to the world around us. Trashy TV shows and movies, books, suggestive songs and dancing. Children are not even sheltered from sexuality and immorality anymore. We have a Supreme Court who puts themselves smack in the middle of the church by challenging God's position on marriage. So much for separation of church and state. What we considered good is now considered intolerant, bigoted, and hateful. How easy it is to be more concerned with what people think of us like Saul did than standing up against what we know to be wrong. Being a Christian is not for sissies. It is hard to die to ourselves for Christ. Are you up for the challenge? Christ is our only shelter against the evil in this world. He is our refuge, just as he was David's refuge. He is our answer, just as he was David's answer. If you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, please come to him. Open your heart and ask him for forgiveness. He is merciful and loving, and he knows our hearts. Let's pray. Dear precious Lord, how grateful we are for this wonderful book of 1 Samuel, Father, and all the lessons you have waiting for us that we would learn. Father, and I just pray to apply to ourselves and apply to our lives, Father, that we might glorify you in our lives, Father, and please you, Lord. Um, we just pray for strength and determination, Lord. And uh, Father, we just um, pray that we'll come faithfully. Faithful. You love faithfulness. And Father, that um, we would just enjoy the fellowship of this study. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord.